This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hey, it's Ron. This episode was recorded before I launched Politicology when I hosted the Lincoln Project podcast on this feed. If you have questions, comments, or advice, you can reach us at podcast at politicology.com or find us online at politicology.com. Enjoy. Once people have their opinions made up, it is very hard to convince them otherwise if the opinions are already made up. You can throw all sorts of facts at them. You can tell them, listen, I trained in medical school. You can say, listen, this is a world-class researcher who's been looking at the data. But quite frankly, they'll take the one thing that'll quote-unquote prove their point. Even if it doesn't, they'll take that one thing and go with it, regardless of what the data truly show. The point of science is that it changes. But the problem is people will already have a bent. Um, and unfortunately, there are only so many people who are willing to change, which is rather unfortunate. Whether you're looking at science or you're looking at politics, but there are people even in healthcare, they'll see a paper come out and they'll run with it if they want to, whether it's steroids or hydroxychloroquine or whatever. If they want to run with it, they'll run with the wrong paper. Uh, and then there are others who will run the other way. And it's really unfortunate that even people who should know better can sometimes politicize matters that really shouldn't be political, but should just be based on data, which change. Science changes and data changes and so should people. And unfortunately, people don't. Hello from the Lincoln Project and welcome back. I'm Ron Steslow. On our last episode, I spoke with three emergency room doctors about their experiences on the front lines battling the pandemic. Today, we're going to bring you the second part of that conversation about the political polarization around the coronavirus and how that impacts patients and doctors on the ground. The CDC and the NIH have also become politicized during the pandemic. Recently, the CDC published and then took down guidance about the airborne transmission of COVID-19. Dr. Ochter, can you help us understand how much doctors rely on government organizations like the CDC for information about an illness and what impact that recent polarization has had? The CDC was the go-to organization for, for, for most doctors to go to uh, when it came to infectious diseases. Somebody came with an STD, uh, what's the best treatment in this population? Uh, if there was a new virus like dengue, uh, what population is most at risk? That was the easiest place to go to because that was the most trusted source. Uh, some of that faith, if not a lot of it, ha has been lost. I actually never thought the CDC would become politicized. Uh, uh, Natasha and I were both in Atlanta. The CDC was a bastion of an institution there. Uh, had its own security, everything. And, and we really thought it was a stalwart organization. Uh, the most recent six months have really baffled me. Uh, when you brought up the aerosolization example, that was bizarrely, uh, that was just very bizarre for multiple reasons. For one, once they announced that, multiple colleagues of mine were like, wait, is this new or what's going on here? Because at this point, Pretty much everybody in healthcare knew that there was aerosolization happening. We'd known it for a long time, uh, and we thought we'd had it pretty much confirmed. So when the CDC came out with that, we were like, oh, okay. There were some healthcare experts saying, finally, they've decided not to be political. 
And we're like, okay, I guess to put that statement out, but we already kind of knew that. For them to basically, an hour later or whatever it was, retract it, uh, really, I think, shot them in the foot. Uh, because they were already behind the eight ball in announcing the aerosolization, or so we thought. Uh, and then when they retracted it, there's nothing about that uh, other than mm. politics. Uh, there was no science behind that. We already knew it was aerosolized. For them to retract, it was clearly politics. And the problem was people had already lost some faith in the CDC. Yeah. Remember, people get things wrong. I, I think all yeah. of us have said that we've been wrong about various factors on this pandemic. It, it's okay yeah. to be wrong. You know, nobody's 100%. We're not God. I mean, uh, but, 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 but the nature of science is that it constantly improves and evolves. And, and I think that's been weaponized against correct it's uh, right the, the, that's exactly the fact right that the information has been updated is how science is supposed to work and yet the the people driving the political narratives are using the very nature of science to to delegitimize the some of the recommendations is that is that accurate Ron, that just it's a classic thing that they talk about if you if you show people gun data uh republicans will say see this proves that we need more guns and democrats will say see this proves that we need more gun control, even though the data are the same. Uh, and so the point of that is once people have their opinions made up, uh, it is very hard to convince them otherwise if the opinions are already made up. You can throw all sorts of facts at them. You can tell them, listen, I trained in medical school. You can say, listen, this is a world-class researcher who's been looking at the data. Uh, but quite frankly, they'll take the one thing that'll quote unquote prove their point, even if it doesn't, by the way, even if it doesn't prove their point, uh, they'll take that one thing and go with it regardless of what the data truly show. Uh, and I think it's a tough job uh, being a public health expert in a particular one with a public face because you feel like you have to get it right every time. Um, and I will say there are some there are some gaffes that the CDC, for example, made. Not the NIH, I don't think, uh, but there are some gaps that the CDC made. Uh, but again, like you said, the point of science is that it changes. The, 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 the problem is people, people already have a bent. Um, and unfortunately, there are only so many people who are willing to change, which is rather unfortunate. Uh, I think the Lincoln Project is a particularly uh, distinct example, right? It's actually full of people who are willing yeah. to say, listen, I can't do this anymore. Listen, this is wrong. But most people aren't like that. Uh, and when you, whether you're looking at science or you're looking at politics uh, in particular, people, we know that 94% of the countries already decided what they're going to decide. And you're working with that under 10% to see if maybe we can change their minds. And what's really unfortunate is that sometimes science becomes like that too. You would hope not. Uh, and you've got this self-selected sample of physicians on right now who are particularly academic and particularly data-driven. But there are mm -hmm. people even in healthcare who, uh, as Natasha mentioned earlier about the steroids, they'll see a paper come out and they'll run with it if they want to, whether it's steroids or hydroxychloroquine or whatever. If they want to run with it, they'll run with the wrong paper. Uh, and then there are others who will run the other way. And it's really unfortunate that even even people who should know better can sometimes politicize matters uh, that really shouldn't be political, but should just be based on data, which change. Science changes and data changes, and so should people. And unfortunately, people don't. Another example of kind of this, you know, th this was maybe a month or so ago, and I'm, I'm sure my colleagues here will, will um, remember this, but, you know, there was there was some data released where, you know, all these COVID deaths, well, really only it was 6% of them died from COVID and this, you know, and the rest were heart disease and, you know, things like that. And that is based on people not understanding how a death certificate is filled out. So when someone dies and it's slightly different in every state, but pretty much the same. You know, the physician fill, who certifies the death has to fill out, you know, what happened. And the physician will write, you know, you, you can't write this a final 
cause of death like cardiac arrest and there are like you know four or five other kind of you know line items are like you know 40 minutes prior to the cardiac arrest patient um developed uh, septic shock um and then five hours prior to developing septic shock they um uh were admitted to the emergency room and, and found to have kidney failure or something like that there's all these causes that you're required to listen actually for us as emergency room physicians it can be very frustrating because we're used to dealing with people you know, EMS is bringing in some guy they're doing CPR on, and I have no idea what caused his death. And then I have to fill out the death certificate. And I'm like, well, I don't know. Was he a smoker? I, I have no idea. I, all I know is they EMS brought in some guy doing CPR on him. So, you know, that's, you know, to, to back up Murtaza's point, I mean, they're just the, the lay public, um, you know, there are people who are just not, uh, not, it's not reputable is not the right word. They're just not authentic equipped. voices. They have, they, yeah. they're not equipped to, to understand, um, you know, these things coming out. And, um, you know, I'm not a legal expert. If I had to, you know, write, uh, if I had to sell my house or something, I wouldn't just wing it on my own. I don't know why people are doing it now. Dr. Kathuria, back to the lack of clarity that we discussed earlier. Did you see patients coming in who who would refuse to wear a mask or their family members perhaps not wearing masks. Can you talk about how that lack of clarity changed the behavior of people's willingness to follow medical advice um, in, in the context of the emergency room treatment or just your work in general? Sure. So I think one thing we were lucky about was that, um, I don't know if I would say lucky because it was very unfortunate at the same time, but we didn't have to deal with a lot of family in the ER because they weren't allowed to come in. So no visitors, unless of course you've got a child, then obviously their parent is going to come with them. One parent, um, or if you have someone who's, you know, mentally disabled or needs someone who's very demented and needs, you know, their caretaker or somebody with them to help us. Otherwise very strict, no visitor policy, which most places here still are on, um, yeah. in Texas. Um, so it's, it was actually very interesting to see the way patients would react to masking when they were walking through the ER, they were coming into the waiting room versus when the, they're in the room. Hmm. So when they're in their, when they're walking through the ER and, and the waiting room, they don't want to get sick. So of course <laughs> they're going to wear their mask because they're actually afraid because all of that, like, Oh, it's a hoax thing goes out the window when they suddenly think, okay, wait, may, I might get it. So, oh. and you see them, very quickly wear their masks, like whatever, some of them wearing like four masks. And I'm like, you don't need that many masks on your face, <laughs> you know, going to the next level. And then when they get in their room, and of course this is a minority, majority yeah. of patients were very, very, very good about respecting us, doing the right thing. And, you know, they were, I mean, this is the first time we've really seen patients really just go above and beyond with gratitude to the ER staff. Um, but there were those patients that you could tell were resistant to public health messaging. And that showed really when they got in their room and the door was closed and, you know, you walked in as their doctor and you were talking to them and they were just mask down, nose out, maybe their mask off at all, getting frustrated when you would ask them, please put your mask back on. Because when we're in there, they're not afraid. There are no other patients around. So they're not afraid about themselves. They know at that point that them wearing a mask is to protect us and the willingness to do that. I mean, it was just frustrating to see that patients, yeah. you know, when it was about protecting themselves, they're all about it. 
But when it's about doing something to protect even the person trying to save them and help them, there's this resistance of like, it's not that they don't care. It's not that they don't care about me getting sick. It's that the ego kind of comes out. Mm. There's room for the ego at that point. There's room to put the self first and the pride to come out in the entitlement versus when you're living in fear and you're afraid of getting something that ego gets crushed very quickly and you're willing to do what it takes to protect yourself. So that's usually where I saw it. I I never really saw it when patients are in the waiting room. And again, this is an overwhelming minority of patients that I saw most of them were, you know, so much gratitude and willingness to do whatever and very concerned. Murtaza, what has your experience been along the same lines? I agree. Basically, the majority are doing the right thing. I think I'm in a very underserved population in Phoenix, and they are particularly grateful. A lot of them are undocumented, so they're grateful anybody is seeing them. Uh, and by and large, they are very willing to wear uh, masks. Uh, but, you know, uh, it is a safety net hospital, and so we get other people as well. And I distinctly remember one patient uh, who was refusing, you know, we had a policy where every admit gets a COVID test. And this patient uh, said that he doesn't believe in COVID, so he's refusing the test. And so we told him, well, if you refuse the test, you're going to go to the COVID unit. And if you don't have COVID, you're going to get it. And he said, well, if I get COVID, I'm going to sue you. Now, imagine the logic of that. I don't believe in COVID, so I'm not going to get tested. But if I do get it, I'm going to sue you, even though you're the ones who are trying to protect me. I mean, there's no there's no convincing. That, that guy's an idiot. I mean, maybe that's not politically correct to say, but, you know, uh, and he's risking not just himself, but also plenty of others. And, and so there's some people who are just no matter what you say or do are just not going to learn. Uh, but we were fortunate, again, maybe because of the population I work with, by and large, they were very, very willing to wear masks um, and, and protect themselves and protect each other. And, and I'm glad for it because, again, in an underserved population, a lot of these people, for one, are of races that have less income, have definitely less wealth, uh, and, and also are living in close quarters with family members. So they're already at higher risk because if one person gets COVID, now the whole household has it. And so they can't distance as well as some other people can. Uh, so at the very least, they were trying to do their part to wear masks as much as possible while they were around us. But you still, I mean, all you do is just drive out of the parking lot of the hospital. You just drive out and it's 4th of July. And it's like, you know, I I really got to celebrate how great this country is and our independence by basically by infecting other people, uh, apparently is what what it means nowadays. And so even if the patients in the ER were doing the right thing, uh, as soon as you step out, you see people who are clearly not. And that's an exercise in frustration but at the very least, I was lucky enough that when I was in the hospital, people were trying to do the right thing. And and, and then like Natasha pointed out so clearly, uh, people will care about themselves, like this guy was when he threatened to sue us. But when it comes to others, they just they just don't care. And I don't I don't think that's what liberty was ever meant to be, which is just I'm only going to look out for number one. Uh, when the when the colonies banded together, uh, thirteen of them, there were a lot of disagreements, but they realized that it worked together to form this new nation. Um, and we've always tried to be a union, even with our disagreements. Uh, but now it's like we just want to be a federation of states who do their own thing uh, and cities and counties and now people. It's down to within within families, within families, family members are disagreeing with each other and they're having debates and arguments about whether they can see their loved one or not uh, because somebody's refusing to wear masks or refusing to distance. And so, well, you can't see your grandchild then. Uh, and uh, and it's, it's amazing that it's come to that. It's amazing that it has come to that. And unfriending each other on Facebook, which is you know, the worst thing that you can do. I mean, but but to your point, we've lost the sense that we're all in this together. We've lost 
and we don't have a leader at the helm who's capable of inspiring us to a common sense of purpose. And in a pandemic, it seems that that is the number one thing you need, which is for everyone to at least share a fact base to operate from. And we've been deprived of that. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory... Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. You mentioned minority communities, and I, I, I want to touch on this as well, because we know that um, that Black people and American Indian people and and Hispanic or Latino people are all uh, at least four and a half times greater uh, risk of hospitalization due to COVID-19 compared to white non-Hispanic people. Um, And Black Americans have a two times higher risk of death from COVID-19 than white people, according to the CDC. Um, Can you talk a little bit about how this virus impacts communities of color? And 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 did you see that play out in do you see that play out in in the emergency rooms? Yeah, absolutely. Now, I've got a biased sample maybe because I'm particularly one of those underserved communities. Uh, and Arizona also has a very large native population. So when we were driving through Tuba City just a couple of weeks ago uh because we wanted to avoid airports, so we had a long drive, uh we experienced firsthand the curfew that they had in place because of how hard they got hit. And we just hoped to God that we wouldn't run out of gas. Uh, because there was nowhere to go because of the curfew because it was so bad there. And so there are definitely some communities who are hit harder. And there are multiple factors at play, right? You, you can argue about well, how much of it is metabolic, how much of it is social and income, how much of it is genetic, etc. Uh, uh, but, the, but the short of it is minority communities are, are hit harder. Uh, and those are the same communities who are least able to distance. So, so part of it makes sense. What's sort of interesting, and I think this really speaks to the healthcare system and the power uh, of physicians like, you know, Dr. Demary and Dr. Barkov, uh, namely that, you know, once those people are hospitalized, uh, at least some analyses show that once Hispanics and Blacks are hospitalized, if you account for the co-founders, you account for income, uh, it turns out that the death rates are no different. So the care they're getting in the hospital once they're there is actually pretty great. And that, I think, speaks a lot to our healthcare providers. I, I think that's why we try to say we're number one. There's a reason people want to immigrate here. There's a people reason. There's a reason people want to get the healthcare here. Uh, uh, people who from other countries who fly here because the care once you're in it is really quite strong. But that's a big if. How do you get in it if you're undocumented? How do you get in it if you don't have insurance? How do you get in it if you live in a rural place and don't have a hospital nearby? You know, not every place is like Boston where you've got Brigham, Mass General, Tufts, Beth Israel, BMC all within walking distance, basically. Um, and so uh, the real issue is, uh, you know, whether it's the genetic makeup of them, or whether it's the income level of them, or whether it's where they live, there are clearly racial differences. And, and honestly, you know, some of my colleagues get mad at me for this, uh, because maybe it is a little bit of a stretch. But to say, listen, I'm not going to distance and I'm not going to wear masks, mm. is not only dangerous to yourselves and others, but it's also racist because there are certain mm. communities who are clearly more impacted by it than others. And, and maybe it's just a personal belief. Uh, but my opinion is if that you have the me, if you have the means to do something, you have even more of an obligation to do it. Yeah. If you have the yeah. money to be able to distance, if you have the facilities to be able to wear a mask, do it. Cause if you're not, you're harming yourself 
but you're definitely harming those who don't have the ability to do it, which is so utterly selfish. And I realize that's become an American ideal and the leadership at the top is extremely selfish. Uh, but I don't think that that's the reason my parents, for example, immigrated here. We immigrated here or they immigrated here for opportunity. Uh, and, and because, you know, we thought that there was a lot of opportunities here by people caring to make each other better here. It's a really good point that I don't think I've heard anyone make that well before. I want to put a question on the table to to each of you. It's very open-ended, but what do you think is the most misunderstood aspect of either the work you do caring for COVID patients, managing uh, managing this crisis in the middle of the pandemic, or the experience of patients who are suffering from COVID and, and their family members? Because I think for a lot of people who only get their information from, let's say, cable news sources or uh, you know the talking heads, what do you think has been missed about this pandemic, the experience of, of the patients who are suffering with COVID and the people who are trying to help them? What do you think has been missed the most in the media narratives? The thing that just I just can't get over is how preventable this was. Um, you know, it really... It really didn't have to be like this. Um, you know, if you had and and I think it gets back to, you know, Trump's basic psychology. I think he'll I think at this point he'll literally say anything to just get through the day. Um and he didn't want to break bad news. And initially it looked like COVID was traveling to states which uh were largely uh you know democratic and 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 he didn't care that much. And it it did not have to be like that. If we had any other president, pick one, Bush, Obama, the other Bush, Clinton, Carter, Reagan, no one would have done this. This is just, you know, just a complete abdication of his responsibility um, as a leader of a country to organize the response. You know, his political move, which, you know, didn't work for him was to try to just shuck it off to the governors and, you know, have, you know, say, hey, it's the governors who are screwing up and I'm going to score political points. Um, it did not have to be like this. If we had gotten it together in February, in March, in April and had a national strategy, a national testing strategy, a national PPE strategy, I mean, he could have a crisis is an opportunity to just hit one out of the park too. And this guy whiffed on every level. He just failed. And, you know, we're here we are six months later. It's been, you know, six months since, uh, hey, we're just going to, you know, button down for two weeks and this is all going to go away when it warms up. Well, it's starting to get cold again. All right. So it didn't go away. It never went away. It's not going to go away. And, you know, strongly, it's just exa an example that strong leadership, you know, Donald Trump loves to play strong man, but mm -hmm. he's not strong. He's weak. He is weak. He cannot make a decision. He is not equipped to handle tough decisions when people's lives are on the line. And we have, you know, 200,000 dead people because of it. It didn't have to be like this. Yeah. And I want to come back to that in a moment because we're going to talk about the the revelations from Bob Woodward's new book in his taped conversations, but but before we do, um, Murtaza and Natasha, I'd love to hear what you think has been the most absent or misunderstood from from sort of popular understanding of of COVID. I do think there are two big things that are I don't know if they're being missed and not addressed or if they're just not being understood well because it comes up very often even with patients that they seem 
very oblivious to it. The first one is the bigger picture of COVID-19. It's not about the 200,000 people who died of COVID-19. Yes, of course, they Mm -hmm. are extremely important. They should be memorialized. They maybe didn't need to die if we took, most of them didn't need to die if we took more aggressive steps. It's an unbelievable tragedy. But the magnitude of the tragedy is so much bigger than Mm. 200,000 deaths. If Mm. you looked in New York City, for example, during the surge of COVID-19, and you calculate the number of deaths from COVID-19, and then you look at the excess death rate, that's what we need to look at. And I I guarantee you, when we get to 2021, Mm -hmm. and we look back and we calculate the excess death rate, that's non-COVID-19 deaths from 2020, it's going to be exceptionally higher than the five years prior, Hmm. starting in February, starting when COVID-19 came into the picture. And that's multiple reasons. COVID-19, of course, is a risk as a virus itself. Yes, it causes heart attacks. It causes strokes. It causes blood clots. It causes respiratory failure. It causes everything bad, multi-organ system failure, horrible things, death, trauma, morbidity, suffering. All of these things happen from the virus. But what we're not looking at is that when the virus hits a community, that community suffers from all the other things. Cancer. We have so many patients who are getting delayed diagnoses for cancer and our cancer rates are actually really low right now. In Texas, for example, I was just talking to a hematologist, oncologist, cancer doctor about this recently, about how exceptionally low our diagnostic rate for cancer is right now in Texas. COVID-19 didn't cure cancer. Well, you know, it's there. It's just people aren't going to see their doctors. They're not getting Mm. their normal care. They're not getting their refills for their medication to manage their long-term heart failure. They're not being able to get imaging or, you know, endoscopies and surgical procedures at the same accessibility and ease that we pride ourselves in in America. We already have an issue with health insurance and coverage and access to healthcare equitable yeah. access to healthcare in the United yeah. States. That's been an issue for a very long time. And that is just being amplified right now. And people are dying from other causes of deaths as well at an exponential rate. And that's what we need to look at. It's not just the people who die of the virus and the case count and the diagnostic rate and the hospitalizations. That's not the big picture. That's important. Mm-hmm. But the big picture is What's the overall morbidity and mortality from COVID-19 on non-COVID-19 patients? It's what's the big picture? Like what are like the mental toll that this is taking? And, you know, and again, like this could have been prevented. We could have managed this better. Um, And, and we're, we're just chasing ourselves right now. And we want, and that's the big thing that is a big pick, a big point to drive home is that our goal was, at one point was to prevent this from being in the United States. And then it was, let's get a control. Let's eradicate it. Let's get, let's do what we can right now. And what it's been for months is not, let's prevent people from getting COVID-19. Let's stop the virus. It's mm. got to go away. Let's bring the case count to zero. That we, We're not, Yeah, that's not going to happen right now. Yeah. The goal right now is to keep the case count low and manageable, the hospitalization slow and manageable so that not only we can manage the COVID patients, but so that we can take care of everyone else in America and give them the same gold standard 
medical care that we pride ourselves in so that we're not giving them third world, you know, developing nation level of medical care Mm. that, you know, we're better than that here, but we can't do that when we're at a surge, when we're at capacity, when we're overwhelmed as a healthcare system, everything suffers. You cannot have a thriving economy with a dying and sick population. It does not work. We have to take care of our people and our health first. That needs to be the priority and it always should have been. And I think that's the big point. Um, The other thing I will say that it's a really difficult thing to discuss. Um, It has been for a very long time, well before COVID-19. But this virus, I think, has really brought out not only the racial disparities, which are just horrible, and the socioeconomic disparities of this virus, um, but it's really pointed out, you know, obesity's role and, you know, how, how people are taking care of themselves on a daily basis. And this is the first time that I know of that we've seen an infectious disease really point out how your daily health and your the food you intake and your weight and how well you take care of yourself can cause you to die. Um, even if you have nothing else wrong with you. And obviously it's not that linear. It's not like, oh, well, your weight's this, that means you're not going to do well with COVID-19. But it's, you know, one of the top risk factors for mortality from this disease, especially under the age of 40 and arguably over the age of 40 because diabetes and heart disease are the number one causes, the number one comorbidities. And they're, you know, uh, your diet and your lifestyle tends to lead to that later in life. So it's something that's very difficult to discuss because there's a lot of, you know, we don't want to shame people. We really want people to like, you know, we don't want anybody shaming ever. Um, But getting people to not only recognize that it's a personal, not only a personal choice, but it's a systemic failure. Like you look at the areas of New York City that got crushed by COVID. Those are lower income areas that have fast food restaurants and McDonald's on every corner. You don't see a McDonald's Mm. in West Village. You know, you're not seeing they're not being targeted by these big fast food industries the way that lower income populations are. And they're the ones who suffer from it at the end. I really uh, I take both points and especially the one about missing the totality of the toll of this virus, because we are very laser focused on just the impact of COVID, just the COVID deaths, just the COVID cases. But I've missed the bigger picture that you just described about the excess deaths that are caused by the overwhelm of the medical system because of having to deal with COVID surges. Um, I think it's a really important point. Uh, Murtaza, I want to go to you for your answer to the same question. Yeah, I feel like, you know, the media does its job in giving as much information as it can, in some cases it's biased, but there are things that, you know, uh, we feel uh, from the physician perspective that don't necessarily get out there. And I'm glad Dr. Barkov mentioned uh, one of the things that really frustrates me, too, which is how preventable this was. You know, I was the guy who was wearing masks on planes for years, and I was the guy who got weird looks. Uh, but you know what? It was like, you know, you do you, I do me, okay? Uh, and and, uh, and it worked fine. Uh, now a lot of people are wearing masks because they're forced to because we couldn't prevent this thing that was preventable. Um, and I completely agree with Dr. Kathuria on the fact that, you know, excess deaths can't be politicized, you would hope. You can talk yeah. about how COVID deaths were 
uh, were written on the death certificate. Um, but in the end, if you compare this year to last year, uh, clearly there was some effect uh, and it wasn't like a meteor hit. Uh, so that basically leaves COVID. Uh, but one of the things that I think that I think people maybe don't understand or have trouble understanding, you, okay, I understand academically, but not like fully, is that, you know, doctors are humans too. Uh, we have to go to work. Uh, nurses are humans. Respiratory techs are humans. And, and we've got emotions too, and we're affected by what we see around us. And so, for example, uh, there's the science behind COVID, or as much as you think you know, and how to actually prevent infections and how to treat people. But then there's how you feel when you walk into a shift, and there are a ton of patients that didn't need to be there. And there are patients that you can't do everything for because there aren't beds. And then you go home after work and you see people who are clearly enjoying as if nothing has happened and what a toll that takes on you as a healthcare worker. Uh, if you feel like you're going to work and you're doing something that feels like it's futile, uh, do you really think that that's going to have no effect uh, on not just the outcome of the physician, but the patients he or she is treating? Listen, if you go to a restaurant and you get a waiter who annoys you, you probably don't cuss him out because he might spit in your burger, right? So you, you hold it in. Okay. Uh, now, of course, people expect more of doctors. And yes, we're not going to give you poor health care because we're annoyed by you. Uh, but if you actually look at data and how doctors act, there are obviously extrinsic as well as intrinsic factors that determine how well we act. Uh, and so whether it's resources, whether it's the type of patient or the type of disease he or she has, uh, emotions can play a role. Uh, and if you're going to come into the ER and say, listen, you know, I don't believe in this, or I don't think COVID is a big deal. Uh, and you keep doing that to physicians, the physicians keep seeing uh, people not listening, people, you know, going the other way, people trying to politicize it, at some point, it begins feeling like, what am I doing here? You know, here I am, I signed up to do this, all of us are, you know, uh, fairly academic or in global health or, or, or doing research. So we're, we're taking pay cuts compared to what we could be making, right? So again, maybe a biased sample. But we're doing it in order to help improve healthcare, whether at the patient level, at the public health level, uh, at the basic science level. Uh, we're trying to make people better, safer, and healthier. And when you have something, you know, where I do neuroscience research, there is no cure for stroke. We're trying to find one, maybe. There's no cure for it. Uh, but for COVID, we have great prevention strategies. For viruses, we have great prevention strategies. Uh, and we know the answer, and people are still not doing it. For people like us who are in a field where our job is to help people and then for other people to be going around actively basically harming people, it's really upsetting. It's really distressing. And, and it makes you, you know, why did I go into the field? Uh, and, and I can't speak for everyone. I'm speaking for myself here, but I do know there have been a lot of frustrations from a lot of the colleagues I have spoken with. And it's just that's something that doesn't necessarily always get expressed because we talk about how bad COVID is, how bad it is in the ER, but how we feel when we go home about, you know, our field in general, about how people are treating each other, it really has a negative impact. And, you know, my wife's a teacher and, and so school opening was, was a huge deal uh, and that became really politicized too. You know, teachers get affected too. Like, I don't, I don't want my kid when I have one, God willing, uh, to have a teacher who's afraid of teaching him, okay? And, and you don't want doctors who are coming into work feeling like what they're doing is futile. Now, again, I'm not speaking for every physician when I say that, uh, but there is, there has been anger. There has been a sense of being demoralized, as other people have mentioned on this panel. And that's something that I think doesn't get out there because I don't know if any physician felt that way uh, for decades. You know, people lament the EHR and how it used to be good in the good old days. Uh, but I don't think there were many, very many times physicians came on in, in the 70s or 80s to say, you know, what I'm doing sometimes feels futile. Uh, and, and to be in that situation uh, is really, it's really pretty upsetting. And I'm not sure that that message gets out there as much. 
actively hurting people because of the words and actions of the president of the United States. And I want to I, I want to talk about how this all could have been prevented. Um, but there's one important point to make about this, which is that for a long time, for months, Dan, we were talking about how Donald Trump is incompetent. Donald Trump mismanaged this crisis. Donald Trump doesn't know what he's doing. Or even on the more generous side, he messed up, right? But we now know that he knew. He had an understanding of how the coronavirus was spreading. He knew how deadly it was. Back in February, we have taped conversations between him and legendary journalist Bob Woodward. This wasn't an accident. The things that he was saying were not accidental. He wasn't mismanaging it. He was actively misleading the public. I want to spend a minute first talking about how knowing specific information would have altered the way you approached treating this disease. But I also would like to hear from each of you doctors how it felt to hear the president say that this affects virtually nobody. The Woodward tapes, you know, when you you hear him on there and he's talking about, oh, no, Bob, this is really bad. This affects young people. Um, It's much, much worse than the flu. I think he used the word strenuous, you know. um, Plague, it rips you apart. Right. Like he knew, um, you know, exactly what this virus does. And he chose to, again, it's like the guy's just saying whatever he thinks will get people to you know, shut up and get him through the day. It's like he has no ability to, um, to organize a thought, uh, you know, to organize a, let alone a response that's going to require weeks and months of effort, of national effort and national, frankly, national unity. Um, you know, you know, coronavirus is one of those once in a, in a lifetime events that, um, People in a crisis are going to rise to, um, and I think you know, people are, people in a crisis are going to rise, or you know, their true colors are going to come out, Ron. And, and this guy just he didn't have the ability, you know, he is engaged in just magical thinking. Like he, you know, he was like, well, if I if I just say the right thing, then you know, maybe people won't take it seriously, and then maybe some miracle come along. You know, the guy made no effort to listen to anyone. Um, you know, it, it, either our own experts, our intelligence experts, our medical professional experts, um, in order to come up with a coherent national testing strategy. And other countries are not suffering from this anymore, Ron. I mean, you know, the, there is kind of a, you know, a, a little bit of a second surge in, in some places. There are other countries that have had, you know, months of zero cases, um, you know, South Korea, New Zealand, um, you know, these are places that have managed this properly. You know, you shut down for two months. No one does anything. You give people, you pass a national stimulus, you, you have a, um, you know, a holiday for, uh, people paying their mortgage and you, that to do something like that requires, you know, uh, a national leadership that, um, you know, 
can be honest with a population and inspire empathy and, you know, common sacrifice in a way that Donald Trump is just incapable of. I mean, he, he inspires no one save, you know, uh, perhaps white nationalists. So, you know, he really is, uh, he really screwed this one up and, you know, 200,000 people are now dead because of it. And, um, the Woodward tapes only confirm um, that, you know, he can't use the excuse of I didn't know, um, you know, he wasn't too stupid. He wasn't too lazy. He didn't not have the right answers. What he was was, um, you know, borderline evil. He was willing to let people die because it was inconvenient to him and, and politically, you know, disadvantageous uh, to to try to come up with a proper response. I mean, he I think truly, um, you know, his actions are criminal. Natasha, it affects virtually nobody. (laughs) How did you feel when you heard that? I felt like somebody just stabbed me in my heart. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. I mean, you, you couldn't feel it. Like you were slapped in the face any harder as a physician, seeing it affect almost anybody to hear the leader of your country say it affects almost nobody. So very frustrating, Um, very frustrating, regardless of what side of politics someone sits on. um, I, I think there's a level of humility that's just not there and it hasn't been shown throughout this process. Um, Really frustrating because those words being spoken to America, to the general population, does nothing but fuel distrust in the healthcare system. We are actively trying to push public health messages to help protect human lives. That's all we're trying to do. We have no financial stake in this. No physician is profiting. I mean, we're not, every specialty is suffering from this. We're not like, oh, we're making more money because there's COVID. Definitely not. Um, Not in the ER, not in the ICU, not specialists. We are all taking a huge hit. Um, And we are all still united and fighting to help protect our patients because we took an oath. We, We took the Hippocratic oath. We have a moral sense of responsibility to care for other people. That's literally our job. Um, And it's hard to do that while risking our own lives, which most of us haven't done before. You know, I mean, it's very rare that a physician can say that, hey, I worked in this environment where I was treating patients and my own life was at risk. Yes, it definitely happens. Um, Physicians who are working with the military, physicians who were working abroad during Ebola, other situations, but not in America. not here. And we, we were all doing it. And while we're doing it with limited PPE, limited protection, our president is saying, Hey guys, this is, it doesn't really affect anyone. It's going to be fine. Just wait till it gets warmer outside. It's going to be fine. And now, Hey, it's hot uh, in case he didn't know it was 105 degrees a couple of weeks ago here. It's been hot and the virus has been just trucking along and very disheartening, very upsetting, uh, hits us really deep, not only because he said it, I think, you know, that's neither here nor there when one person says something, but what that has done to the general population, 
um, and build distrust in our altruistic efforts to save people. That distrust has a very real impact on the work that each of you does every day and everybody in the medical community. My sister is just starting her residency right now. When COVID hit, she was about to be a newly minted MD. My mom is 62 years old and just became a nurse. And she has COVID right now. Oh, and, no. um, and so when I heard the president say that this affects virtually nobody, I didn't need another reason to be doing what I'm doing right now. But my resolve has never been stronger, let me put it that way, in working to achieve the mission of the Lincoln Project. Murtaza, I want to give you the last word on this. I was going to say, I, I'm sorry to hear about your mom. Uh, that's the exact same age my mom is. And uh, on that long road trip we were taking that I mentioned, uh, you know, I, we, I wouldn't even stay on the same floor as her. And she, she got annoyed. But uh, there are clearly certain ages that are more susceptible to deconditioning. And so I was trying to do as much as possible to, you know, see her for the first time in almost a year, but at the same time, you know, see her just with my eyes, nowhere near where I'd be even close to breathing on her. Um, and, and you had that unfortunate situation where your, your, where your mom did get it. Uh, and, and you know, 62 is still young, but still, uh, you know, uh, that's not a great first experience as a nurse. So my condolences, uh, kudos to her for going into the field, especially with everything going on right now, uh, as well as your sister. And, and I hope, I hope for a speedy recovery for her. And again, I'm sorry that you've had to had a mother get sick for one, which is bad enough. But two, on top of that, see a president say that it basically doesn't matter, uh, which, by the way, is in line with decades of what he's been saying. Uh, I, I don't want to speak for you, Ron, but I think one of the reasons you joined the project was because he really was uh, the, the last straw on the camel's back. Uh, you know, whatever your political beliefs are. Uh, with, with this guy, even though he never been in politics before, we knew how he ran his businesses and we knew how he treated people. And it was always just about him over country, over party, over family. Uh, and uh, I, I've never I've never met a human like that. Uh, I don't think in person ever uh, to have a person like that become president was uh, very distressing. Uh, and then for him to have an opportunity, by the way, to recoup some of his losses it's something I just don't understand. Like if he knew back in February, whenever he's speaking with Bob Woodward, that, you know, there's decent data that this is aerosolized while the rest of the community was still debating it. If he sort of knew that you would think he could have taken advantage of it because he knew he had a cult following. Uh, I agree with him when he says he could shoot someone in Times Square and not lose a single vote. Uh, it's crazy that that's true. Crazy. It was crazy when he said that. What's crazier is that that's true. You would think you could use that to some advantage, whether your political advantage or hopefully to the country's advantage to help prevent people from getting sick. But instead, he sat on it, sat on it, and, I don't, and for no reason. It's not like, you know, when Churchill discovered that, you know, he could decode Nazi messages, uh, that he was like, let's wait on something that's going to potentially be even more beneficial. Uh, there was nothing to gain from waiting on it. There was everything to gain from acting quickly and, and telling people to distance and telling them to wear masks. Uh, there was nothing political to be gained from sitting on it. There was nothing to be gained. I just cannot, I cannot comprehend why he would do that. And on that same side, I cannot comprehend 
why people will continue supporting a guy like that. And, and I know that seems very political, uh, but boy, it's hard not. It's just, I feel like this goes beyond politics. To have a person like him for dec- for decades has been only looking out for himself uh, and actively harming other people just so he can get what he wants. Uh, I mean, this was such a layup, man. Exactly. Like, like, exactly. Just listen to the CDC. Have Melania start knitting some homemade masks exactly. and put MAGA on them. It's like such a layup and he couldn't so even easy. do that. So easy. Like it was – again, I'm not a political expert. I'm just a doctor. There was no way to get this wrong if the information he had. And he got it wrong repeatedly and i just cannot understand it uh like dan was saying it's like he just has some sort of magical thinking and and we've let him be our president it's it's really it's really distressing uh you know there are other things that maybe you can debate on you can debate tax policy or whatever but this was just like he's just such a layup um and then and for people to be getting sick while he's still talking like a maniac uh for for us to see personally and you ron personally having that in your family it's uh, it's beyond offensive. I mean, it's it's dangerous, it's infuriating, and you know, I'm rarely I'm rarely speechless. Uh, I have too big of a mouth, uh, as Natasha can probably tell you. But he just he really befuddles me, and really angers me, and the fact that the fact that he's even in the running is really appalling, and I. I I, I really, I really don't know what more to tell the American people, um, because this is, this is not what I thought this country was growing up. It is not what I thought this country was, and uh, I, I don't think in, in in their wildest imaginations, my parents would have guessed that I'd be talking to you on this podcast or talking to the American people on air, telling them we are better than this. It really is unbelievable. Thank you again to Drs. Kathuria, Barkov, and Okter for being on today. And thanks to all of you at home for listening. This episode was recorded when I hosted the Lincoln Project podcast on this feed. If you have any questions or advice, you can reach us at podcast at politicology.com. And please know that even if we don't respond, we read every email we get and we love hearing from you. If you enjoy the show, it would help us if you could rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Ron Steslow. I'll see you in the next episode.